engaged in that wonderful, life-giving life of being filled with the Spirit. Can I commend this to you? Not just as a cultural norm in your church, but a personal living empowerment day to day. That was one thing that was missing. The other thing was missing was a biblical social vision of how this gospel could not just change the life of an individual such as I was in my boarding school, but could change the lives of communities and bring together opposites, challenge injustice, bring up those who are oppressed, challenge those with plenty of resources to start sharing them with others. How was this going to be done? So I came back to England, age 19, thinking something's got to change in me. I can't be an individualist anymore. I've got to be a community person. And I wanted my Christianity to follow that line. Fast forward many years when I became a pastor 25, 30 years ago, I thought, how are we going to do this in our church back there in Shrewsbury? And we've been working and experimenting on many ways of doing this ever since then. So I'm a very unlikely person to stand in front of you. But God called me to step out of a comfort zone onto the edge of his kingdom advance. And I believe he's calling many of us on a similar journey. I want to share with you three different perspectives this morning, three different contexts for what we're talking about. And I'd like to turn to the fourth slide, please. I want to talk to you about three different things, three things we need to pull together. We need to have a think for a moment about what is happening in our country, the United Kingdom. Number one. Number two, we want to contextualize that with what the scriptures tell us around the area, social justice, care for the poor that we're talking about this morning. I'll just take one very brief passage. And number three, we want to hear the prophetic voice of God in this context. Our nation, at this time, as a people of God who put themselves unashamedly under the authority of Scripture, as I do unashamedly this morning in association with your elders in this church. Now, in our nation, things are changing fast. Since the Second World War, there's been the capacity, step by step, to increase the provision of the state for human need, medical, educational, care of the elderly, pensions, unemployed, disabled. And that care and uh, capacity of the state increased gradually throughout the second part of the 20th century until the financial crash 10 years ago, which fundamentally changed the economic environment of our nation more or less irrevocably in our lifetimes by increasing our sovereign debt nationally to unprecedented levels. And so began a process 
of reducing the capacity of the state, whether in regional governments or in national governments, the inevitable economics are gradually coming up to show us we can't do what we used to be able to do as a state. And so the holes begin to appear. How are we going to build enough houses? How on earth are we going to care for the ever-increasing number of elderly people? Now, I've spoken to policymakers and local council chiefs and asked them this question face to face. I asked the council, the head of our council in our county, the, last year when I was in a meeting, I said, what are you going to do about it? He said, I don't know. How are we going to handle the real challenges of the benefit system rollout that's happening in our country that's so hotly debated? So our national context reveals to us all that although many people are still economically secure, and that is a very real truth, we have to set aside another truth. Many people are not. And I set out the case for this in the second book. And you can read a more detailed explanation of that uh, assertion there, which I haven't got time to go into this morning. So, folks, we have a system, where, a situation in our country where policymakers and those in public life, they know that there are very hard choices to be made. There are unanswered questions about how the provision of our services are going to continue. And that is the national context. That is, that is the situation in your city. That is the situation in my town. That is the situation across all of Scotland and indeed all of the UK to one degree or another. Now in that context, we've seen the charismatic movements both in the denominational churches like the Anglicans and the Baptists and others and also the new church movements like ours, we've seen them growing and developing. But we haven't yet seen a full engagement of that burgeoning spirituality and those strengthening churches with some of the issues that are being presented in our society. And that's our journey in the next decade or two. That's where we're going, if we want to. And why should we? Why should we? Not just because someone out there in the media is saying so, not just because the politicians are crying out for help, not just because the charities are running out of money, not just because there's a particular problem in our city, although those things are important. There's an even more important reason. And that is that in the very heart of New Testament Christianity and the formation of the church, there was a priority made for the church universally by the apostles and derived directly from Jesus to prioritize the needs of those who are vulnerable in any community. And this came to a head in the early church in a very dramatic encounter which I just want to relate to you very briefly. It's an extremely interesting encounter. 
You'll remember in the early church that there was a very strong Jewish mission that Peter headed up around Jerusalem and Judea, church planting all the way around there. Most of the apostles were involved in this. But Paul had remarkably been called on the Damascus Road to join the apostolic band, but not to prioritize the Jewish people, but to get to the non-Jewish people, which we call Gentiles, to get out there into the wider world. And he spent some years getting out there into the wider world. He went to Antioch. He went to southern Turkey, what we call Galatia, and Asia Minor, and all those areas, then over into Greece and Macedonia. And you know the story. Paul just was on the move. Now, during this particular period, while Paul was on the move, traveling around in these Gentile communities, Peter was operating in Judea very intensively. An allegation came from some scurrilous people who were trying to undermine the church from a Jewish background who said to Peter and the others, hey, Paul isn't authentic. He's not telling the whole gospel. And they harassed Paul. They were called the Judaizers. Why aren't you making these Gentiles come under the Jewish law and all those kind of things? So Peter and Paul convened a meeting with their immediate followers and colleagues, which is recounted in Galatians chapter 2, to discuss the two branches of the mission of the church and try and work out whether there was any disparity between the two and whether it mattered. Can you get the context? Because something very surprising happened in that conversation, which is incredibly relevant to what we're talking about. So in Galatians 2... Paul says in verse 1, after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem. This time with Barnabas, I took Titus along. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, who, uh, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God doesn't show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I'd been entrusted to the task, task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised or Gentiles, just as Peter had to the circumcised or the Jews. So that's the background. Now, three verses coming up now, which I want to concentrate on, because they contain a remarkable surprise. For as God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles, James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. When they recognized the grace given to me, they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, the Jews. Then in verse 10, a sudden, surprising statement. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I've been eager to do all along. Now, why on earth did that issue come up? 
because they were just talking about whether they were preaching the right gospel. Have you got the atonement right? What's the situation with the law? Do you believe in grace? Are you preaching baptism? They'd had all that discussion, and they said, Paul, you get 100% mark. It's great. What we're preaching to the Jews, you're preaching to the Gentiles, we're on the same page, you have the right hand of fellowship. So why suddenly this comment? Because Peter and the Jewish apostles knew that in Judea, with all the Jewish background, the Messianic Jews who come to Christ knew like they knew, like they knew that God loved the poor because they'd read their Old Testament. But when Paul went to the Gentiles, they hadn't heard of the Old Testament. They hadn't heard of Yahweh before the Lord and Father of our our Lord Jesus Christ, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ was presented to them. These Gentiles... No background in Judaism, monotheism. Suddenly Christ comes to them. And what's more, they have no history in Gentile society, in Greek and Roman society, of public charity of any significance. We know that from historians. Charity wasn't a big deal. It is in our culture. It didn't exist. So Peter suddenly thought, Paul You might preach a completely orthodox gospel, but we might still have a fundamental difference between your churches and ours because you don't put in the DNA of your churches the ministry for the poor as an essential foundational ingredient wherever a church is planted in any society. That is the DNA of the New Testament. Now, Paul didn't have a problem with this. He said, I've been doing this, Peter, don't worry. And I ain't going to change. So it wasn't a bone of contention. But it makes you think. It was a non-negotiable norm in the New Testament church that every church had a focus on people in need. To express the heart of God, to express an ongoing ministry of Jesus Christ, and to follow a particular apostolic command as we see recorded in this passage. Can you see the significance of that? And therefore, if we have in our churches this feeling the mercy ministries are somewhere over there, they're for the enthusiasts, or maybe they're in another country, We're not yet reflecting the New Testament norm. And I believe we're on a journey as a movement, as individual churches, to get closer to this biblical norm. Are you on that journey? I think you are. That's the journey I'm on. That's the journey I'm encouraging people to be on. Let's go back to our three pictures, the next slide. Three contexts. Our nation, the scriptures. But as always, one of the most informative things to help us on our journey is what are the prophetic voices saying to the church? 
because of the position I'm in, leading an organization involved in conferences and meeting hundreds of people, I receive prophecies regularly. Can be a hazardous business. But I take it very seriously. And so I record the things that people say, particularly those who come with a sense of authority and clarity. So the voices that are speaking to me and to others are basically saying, prepare the church. Because things are going to change in the nation. And we're going to need to be ready for more strategic interventions than we ever imagined 10 or 20 years ago. Things are going to get vulnerable economically, partly for the reasons stated earlier on. We need to get ready. And that's my message to you today. We need to get ready. Now, if 15 years ago someone had said to me, by about 2015, there'll be a nationwide food bank movement with over a thousand outlets, manned mostly by Christians. I would have said, what? I didn't see it coming. But that's the world we live in. And that happened very suddenly. From 2010 to 2015, we saw a tremendous increase in the food bank movements in the UK in response to economic and social circumstances. So what happened there could happen in other areas of Christian action, social action, quite suddenly and quite dramatically, but only if we're prepared and only if we see things coming and we start realising that the church may end up being in the position of a strategic partner of the public authorities and a strategic provider for needy groups more than we ever realized. And that is what I believe is going to happen over the next two decades. That's what the voice, prophetic voices are saying to me consistently from different people. So just as Joseph had in the Old Testament the years of plenty before the years of famine, he took great provision, he took great preparation. So I believe the church now needs to increase its capacity to get ready. There will be days when local authorities and public figures will come to knock on church, the door of churches like yours and say, we need your help. So that's why I do what I do. And that's why I'm here today. I believe that. And I believe it's a fantastic opportunity. And God is already preparing us. And some of us are already on that journey and other of us know we should be going on that journey in years to come. And the beautiful thing is we don't have to compromise anything that we hold dear in the church to engage in these things. Because we need to hold together a belief that the ultimate salvation of anyone in need is in Christ rather than just in emergency provision. We need to be giving Christ to people. 
We need to hold together the belief that the supernatural intervention of God by the Holy Spirit can do amazing things that lots of other things can't. And we also need to hold that together with the fact that we need to get our hands dirty. We need to do things practically and be organized. It all holds together. It's not one or the other. And as we go on this journey, we're recapturing some of the amazing creativity and energy of some of the early revival movements like the Wesleyans, Salvation Army, I write about it in the book, who understood all this very deeply, right from the beginning. Now here's part of the journey. This is the last section of my talk. I'm going to invite a, a response at the end because I believe that the Holy Spirit will be touching some of us here in the balcony as well. And I believe it's a day of encounter with the Lord for some of us, a day of commissioning, a day of commitment, a day of moving forward. But in this next slide, hopefully, I just want to talk to you very briefly about six things that I've discovered through my own life and through talking to hundreds, if not thousands, of people. Things that God it needs to do within us on the journey. This isn't just about projects, it just isn't just about church strategy, about finance, about prayer meetings, about starting new projects and training people. All those things are important. What I've discovered is this is a journey of the heart. So can I speak to you in this last section from my heart? These are the things I've discovered. As we consider the disparity of wealth and poverty and other issues of injustice in our nation, we begin, we do have to begin to reflect on the materialism into which we've been baptized by our culture. And we have to start asking ourselves, how much do I need to live? viably and effectively, with the blessing of God, who always multiplies and provides. He's a wonderful providing God, and I believe that with all my heart. I'm not talking about asceticism. But I'm talking about something I find beautifully expressed in the life of Christ, in the life of the early church, which I would describe in one word as simplicity. Keeping things simple. Not getting too cluttered up with hobbies and materialism and the excessive things that our society tells us we need. I sit down with my wife sometimes and I look her in the eye and she looks me in the eye. Usually it's her looking me in the eye saying, do we really need this? <laughs> she grew up in East Africa, working in Uganda, and then her father was, uh, her father working in Uganda, then he was uh, working rebuilding southern Sudan after the civil war in the 70s. So they knew what simplicity was. I think God wants us to recapture a sense of not being enslaved by the material world. But usually that message is preached negatively. I don't want to preach it negatively. I want to say, let's be captured by something more wonderful. <laughs> Which is a bigger view of God's kingdom. Where to share what we have is not so hard as the world tells us. 
So we've gone through a simplicity audit in our family. And we keep things simple. Not in an abstemious way, not with asceticism, but just asking the question. What does God want us to have? What does he want us to share? I've still got parts of my loft that need a bit of an audit. I'm a bit worried about that because some of my books are probably going to have to go and I've got a few thousand of them. <laughs> but mind you, they, you know, the ceiling is sinking a little bit down, so you know, that day may be coming soon. This isn't a heavy weight. This is just a prophetic comment. Brothers and sisters, you know, I think you know where I'm coming from. And interrelated to that is real generosity. Many of you are very, very generous people. I've no doubt about that. I don't know you, but this church feels like a generous church. But I've found some very interesting thing happening recently. Some friends say, well, you know, we have this money we give to the family, we have this money we give to the church, but we keep some money just for the poor. Just for a human need, we'll find. So when that need comes up, they've already got the resource. God's calling us to be very generous. But equally significantly, he's calling us to what I call proximity. When I read the New Testament, what I notice is how closely Jesus lived with people. Cheek by jowl. With the common man, with the prostitute, with the tax collector, with Joe Bloggs, the fisherman. And one of the risks of our society is living in social enclaves. Well, you know there's a problem, but it's just a little bit out of your social reach and your geographical reach. God taught me this in a very powerful way when I was a university student at a very elite university, Oxford University, and I was walking along the street regularly as an idealistic university student, believing in Christ, believing all the things I'd learned from South Africa, and I kept meeting the same guy, begging. And we got talking. I used to give him things occasionally, buy him some food occasionally. He was always there, same place. His name was Brian. We got talking and he got to know my name. He was always in the same place. And then one day he said, I need to talk to you. He said, I've been housed by the council. So he had a, a flat. And then he said a most amazing thing to me. He said, Martin, would you come to my place? That was an amazing thing. Because I realized I was the only person he had invited to his place. Because he didn't have any friends or family. And I was the nearest to a friend he had. And I was just a young, idealistic university student walking along the street. So I said, Brian, I'll come to your place. We got to his place, basement, filled with smoke. It's the sort of place where you take a deep breath when you go in and you hold your breath till you come out the other end. But it doesn't work for a half hour conversation. And I visited his house, his flat regularly for the next period of time till I left the university. We became friends, I prayed for him, I told him about Christ. And I realized I'm the only friend you've got. And then came a very powerful moment. Because I said to him one day, Brian, I'm leaving because I was finishing, moving away. And tears came. But whose tears? 
my tears as well as his. I had lots of friends who had great plans to live great lives and conquer great heights. But I had one guy who had nothing. But he was my friend. And I missed him. And he missed me. But he's still in my heart. Proximity. God teaches us by our, relation, our close relationships with people. And that's one of the things he's teaching you by or has taught you by or might do so in the future. And it's part of that journey. We're not in a culture of patronage, helping people from a height and a distance. We help people side by side as best we can. We need community. That's the community of the church. I'm not in for Lone Rangers in this kind of work. Not many Lone Rangers make the grade. Many of them get burnt out. But God has given us a wonderful community of the church. He's also given us some amazing charities and citywide organizations that we can work with. And I know that's true here in Edinburgh. And then we need strategy. We don't just want to help the person who's in an emergency. We want to start rebuilding lives. And that takes strategy. That takes a plan. And there are many type of plans we want to develop, whether we're helping the elderly or benefits clients or incoming refugees or anyone else that we might be reaching out to. God gives strategy. Remember a situation in the city I was working in, visiting, where someone inquiring about Christ had come to a church and they told the church that they'd worked in a particular club where human trafficking was taking place. So the church not only involved, got involved in helping this lady who was coming out of prostitution, but they then thought, wow, we can do something a bit more. They got in partnership with the police and the police broke that trafficking ring. There were some major trials, some major convictions, and they, they, they broke up the trafficking trade significantly in their city. They had a strategic view, not just the individual sufferer, but what can we do strategically? And then finally, this is my final point. And this is really vital. This is the one I have to fight for all the time. Expectancy. Is God going to move? Is his supernatural power going to get involved when we are providing a lunch club for the elderly? Is his supernatural power there? Is his supernatural power operating in the food bank as we relate to people? Is his supernatural power there to do miracles in people's lives who are refugees or asylum, failed asylum seekers in our city? And what I notice is a risk that the activists are so focused on the activity that their faith in the miraculous rather than their activity can be not as great as it can be. And so I want to advocate that we believe in a God who can suddenly touch people's lives as we're helping them.
through Christ, through preaching, through prayer, through miraculous circumstances. That's what the Salvation Army believed. Booth had no doubt about the fact that the drunkards even taken off the streets are going to be saints, reformed, going to become leaders in the Salvation Army, going to get out on the streets. Not everyone made it, but a lot of them did. And so I'm looking forward to the day when our type of churches are led by or having their broader leadership teams, many, many people whose life story is, I came from the bottom. One of the greatest joys I've had recently is talking to a man who's now an elder in the New Frontiers Church. He's an Iranian, and his first experience of the UK was uh, as a refugee asylum seeker, persecuted in Iran because of his faith. And he came and he joined the church and now he's an elder. Why not? That day's coming. It's already here in one or two churches. It's going to be more normal in five or ten years' time. Someone from your food bank in the city leading the worship, leading the ministry team, leading the youth work coming an elder, nothing is impossible. It's just we don't expect these things. But I'm expecting them. My colleague who co-wrote my book, it was a deliberate decision to co-write. Her name is Natalie Williams. She's a single lady from Hastings who came off a sink estate and came to Christ at a similar age to me, found it hard to join a middle-class church. Her story and others like it need to be told. It's a different story to mine. Those stories need to meet. And as they meet, there's power.